Pro teams have millions to spend, and they don't always spend them wisely. But when it comes to a great shave, you don't have to shell out tons of cash. Harry's saw customers getting ripped off by the shaving industry, with overpriced, underperforming products, and decided to do something better. They found their own way to make beautifully designed razors for a fraction of the price of the other big brands, so you never wonder if you overpaid. Harry's shaving products look great, and the weighted handle makes shaving feel great too. I like to keep my beard neat, and Harry's always leaves me with a smooth yet crisp shave. Harry's quality is top-notch, thanks to German-engineered blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer. You can get a five-blade razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and a travel cover for just three bucks at harrys.com slash bluewire. And Harry's has the highest customer satisfaction in the shaving industry, plus a convenient subscription option that you can cancel at any time. Getting the best doesn't mean spending the most when you shave with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash bluewire. That's harrys.com slash bluewire for a $3 trial set. Hello and welcome to Here's Where It Went Wrong, the podcast where every week we have on one of our favorite comedians to talk about one of their favorite things, and we trace its history to find out exactly where it all went off the rails. I'm Winsler Powers. I'm joined as always by my co-host, Andrew Nadeau. Andrew, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. This was a really fun show. We had John Drake on. He's got the Blast Zone podcast, which you and I both did recently. He's also the social media manager for Metify. Very funny guy. We're so uh, glad to be able to have him on. He wanted to come on today and talk about beer, which is a thing that I do not enjoy with a history that I absolutely love. Yeah. Andrew, we got into you not enjoying it. Yeah, we, we hit that hard. <laughs> and, and normally I'd be cool. Normally I'd be like different strokes for different folks, but you just kept digging holes for yourself. And it was beautiful to see. It was, it was Sideshow Bob stepping on Rake's territory is what you were doing. <laughs> I understand how it came off, but it was so clear in my head when it was like the inhale and no, it's scratchy, you guys. It's scratchy. Oh, oh, no, no, no. We'll let let them decide if this made any fucking sense on your part. I don't think I'm I'm coming out on top on this one. You know what? We'll let the audience decide. That's right. It's up to you guys. Go keep listening. You'll find out soon. But when it's something you enjoy, and I was glad that we got to have a podcast talking about beer, which isn't just three guys discussing IPAs for four hours. I felt like we got some cool stuff here, some history a lot of people don't know about it, some different takes on beer. A lot of lawn stuff. A lot of stuff about lawn, surprisingly. Just way more lawn than I was expecting. (laughs) But don't take our word for it. Let's get into it. Let's go. John Drake, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thanks for having me, guys. Excited to talk about something I'm very passionate about. Absolutely. When and I both just did your podcast, Blast Zone, to talk about movies, and you and I got to talk about Walk Hard, and when, what did you guys cover? We talked about the cinematic masterpiece of Funny People, where I got progressively angrier as the time went on. Yeah. <laughs> but that's, that's the right way to watch that movie, because it starts off kind of good, so you're like, oh, I'm feeling this, I'm having a good time talking about the beginning section, and it just gets worse and worse as it goes. The whole time, like, I'm just like, I want the first movie I was watching. Why did you segue into a worse second movie? (laughs) I'm doing the blast zone again. I'm sorry. This is my podcast. (laughs) 
<laughs> but guys, go listen to Blast Zone and, and you can hear when get that exact amount of angry. Yep. Uh, <laughs> Let's also get into the important part of the Walk Hard podcast that you guys recorded, where I, I listened to the, the preview today about the fantastic Paul cutting himself in half scene which is one of my favorite moments in the movie. <laughs> yeah, that, that was a fun one to talk about. It's been a while since I'd seen it, so it was good to catch up. Yeah, it's, it's one of those movies that if you ever meet somebody who hasn't seen it, you're going to talk at them about it at length. So hopefully it inspires some more people to go watch it so I don't have to explain to them why it's perfect. It's a movie that destroyed biofilms for like 10 years. That's how good <laughs> yeah. it was. No one else could make biography films for like a decade. It's incredible. <laughs> Bohemian Rhapsody came out. Half the reviews were like, if you've seen Walk Hard, you'll know that this scene goes here. It was 10 years after Walk Hard. People still can't get away from its shadow. It was incredible. It's so good. I'm amazed it's not better known because it really was fantastic. We covered that too. But we have you on today to talk about something other than movies. Uh, John, what did you want to talk about? I wanted to talk a little bit about the history of beer. Which has a fantastic history. Yeah, just a rich history. And like we kind of discovered in our research, goes back to like so many different cultures throughout the years have had some version of beer and there's so much to it. Like, and there's, there's so much like shady business dealings that go into kind of how beer is made and distributed to the people these days. And it's something I'm passionate about. So I want to kind of open maybe some people's eyes who aren't familiar with kind of what goes on behind the scenes in that business. We got to start off with some personal anecdotes since this is something that I'm sure everyone, you know, most people enjoy at least. So John, What's your favorite beer? What are you drinking these days? I see you got a glass right next to you. I do. I, I felt uh, a little awkward not bringing a beer to my recording of the beer episode. So I have a double IPA in the glass, which is kind of a stereotypical like white guy in his 30s beer to drink right now. I was going to say that if you're on a podcast, that is the beer you guess the podcast host is, is drinking. <laughs> exactly. I'm being a little bit of a stereotype. <laughs> It's a double IPA, so you went, you double down on IPAs. So it is. Let me get you the actual alcohol by volume percentage. Oh yeah, that's that's what our audience is here for. <laughs> so anytime you hear double in a beer, it just means more alcohol in it. So double IPA just means like a stronger, stronger beer, more alcohol. Exactly. So normally that would be a five percent, and now it's ten. Correct? Is that what right. I'm assuming from a double? Fantastic. I can do math. See, Andrew, <laughs> I can be the smart one occasionally on these episodes. I was really impressed. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, yeah, that's kind of my go-to if I'm trying out a new brewery. I like to see what they have, you know, to offer in the IPA area. But that's not to say I'm just like an IPA bro. I'll drink almost any style of beer and enjoy it. Awesome. Andrew, beer? Hate it. Really? I think it tastes like spicy grass. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why we're doing this. <laughs> why is that a bad thing? Spicy grass sounds delightful. <laughs> right. <laughs> No, I, I I have never enjoyed it. I've I've tried multiple times, and eh, not not for me. Uh, and I, I felt like this was a great topic because of that. Because the idea of three white guys having a podcast where they all talk about how much they enjoy beer, I couldn't take. Uh, so I was glad I had the contrasting here, so we can cover the full range of the majority of people who really sincerely enjoy it, and those of us who are just like I. I mean, it's just someone mowed their lawn and. It's terrible. <laughs> well, you're like our impartial arbiter over beer yeah. now because you you don't have a vested interest in beer. So you can actually look at it through an objective lens. I love the history. I mean, the, the science of beer, I, I, I think, is great. You got yeast and that's pretty much all I need. <laughs> Andrew, 
I'm sorry, did you compare beer to a freshly mowed lawn as a bad thing? Like, you're just, like, listing things that are objectively good and being, like, beers like that. <laughs> okay, but imagine, like, a freshly mowed lawn, but you don't know it, and you just, like, walk through it and inhale. And you just, that's what it beer feels. It's it's tingling. That's and- nice! <laughs> the smell of freshly mowed grass is fantastic! Not the smell, the feel. I hate beer. It's like when you flip the pillow over and it's all nice and cold on the other side and you go right back to sleep. <laughs> The worst. I am good with the smell of fresh, but like imagine like inhaling lawn. That's what like mouth and lungs and not smell. And <laughs> Andrew's over here just like, you know, that thing where you find like $20 in your pocket. It's like if that was a beverage. When you pull your winter coat out from the last year and there's, you know, $37, the worst. You know, when your crush tells you that she likes you back, it's kind of like that. I don't know what situation, like how does that even come about in like inhaling lawn shavings? I mean, I, I feel like it's a, windy day and a freshly cut lawn and breathing. I, I don't remember, like this wasn't something I, I set out to do. Let's <laughs> recreate the condition. I will say I am right in the middle because you drink like nice IPAs. Andrew doesn't drink beer at all. And I went to a state college called the University of Alabama. So <laughs> I drink straight up just beer flavored water. Yeah. I am a huge fan of the light family, the Bud Lights, the Miller Lights. Sometimes if I'm counting my calories, I'll do a Michelob Ultra, which is one calorie less than Miller Lights. I did do <laughs> Miller 64 for a little bit when I was really on a weight loss kick. And you will not imagine how much shit you get when you drink a Miller 64. A Miller 64 is like if you're taking a sip from a glass of water and then someone behind you just yells, Bud Light! And that's how a Miller 64 tastes. (laughs) I mean, I would be right there making fun of you as well for the Miller 64. But do you think you could tell the difference between any of the light beers? Like, do you think you could tell a Miller Light from a Coors Light or a Bud Light? I can. I have a hierarchy. So I go Michelob Ultra, Bud Light, Miller Light. And then here's my little snobbery. I'll look down at like Natty Light. And Natty Light (laughs) is not that much of a step down, but like, I'm just like, Ooh, gross. Like, like I have any class. I'm like, the reason cast systems are made is so that you could have people slightly lower, at least feel good that someone's lower than them. And that's where I'm at, where I get to like look down on Natty Light, even though I'm not any better. I just put myself in a system so that I could feel good about myself. Understood. I feel like this is is how every time I see someone with a PBR, there's always someone that's like, but it won, it really won the blue ribbon, guys. And it just immediately sets that standard. The cool thing about PBR is they put it in a fancy bottle in other countries and charge a lot of money for it. And people look at it like a fancy beer. Like in certain parts of Asia, it's considered like a high-end craft beer. <laughs> kind of the way we look at like Stella Artois in the States. That's like piss in Europe. That's like what they give you, you know, when you're like 12 because you drink in Europe whenever. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think does does help explain how a lot of the standards of beer are set and have issues that it is not something that's necessarily based on process or cost or actual quality. It's marketing heavy. Oh, it's very marketing heavy. And like, I enjoy the process of drinking beer, but I also enjoy the process of I'm garbage and I will like shotgun a beer. And I'm so happy to do it. I cannot be more state school garbage. I promise you. And I'm almost 30. I should not be shotgunning beers at my age, but I do. Everything has a time and place. I talk other people into it. Okay. 
Worst thing I've ever done. And this is this is something that's going to get me thrown out of this podcast. Andrew's never going to record with me again. And John, I'm going to blame you for the rest of my life for this topic. So when my life is ruined, know that it's your fault. Not mine for telling this story. I once went to a Wrigleyville bar. Red flag right there. I should not be doing that. I w- go up to the bartender and I ask for a Bud Light, which they serve as a tall boy. You know, just a very large can. And I ask for it unopened. And they should not legally give me that, but they do. And I proceed in this Wrigleyville bar on a dare to shotgun it. And they, <laughs> the bartender looks at me and is just like, dude, come on. And I immediately was just like, I'm sorry. And I cleaned everything. And I was like, I'm so sorry. I please don't, please don't. I, I very much apologize. Uh, and they were just like, you're not the first. And I was like, good, perfect. I'm at least not the worst person here. Why did he think you didn't want it opened? I wonder what his thought process was about acquiescing to that request. Well, it couldn't have been anything good. And I was clearly, it was clearly 2 a.m. when I asked for this. They shouldn't have complied. Uh, I would never do that now. This was like, Three years ago, I promise I've grown since then, and I would never do that in retrospect. But very drunk when when he was 26 years old and had the world by the tail, just thought he could be a huge asshole. And he was and then immediately came back to Earth and had to apologize for the rest of the night. I tipped so much money that my wife was just like, what the fuck did you do? And I was too embarrassed to tell her. It's a bribe. It's a bribe at that point. Yeah. It was. It was a bribe. It was purely a bribe. Wrigleyville also shouldn't have fucking batting cages in the middle of a bar, but they do that too. So there's really no rule in that part of town. It was that bar. It was. That's yeah. the one Wrigleyville bar I remember because we all were like seven beers in trying to do the batting cage and failing miserably. I whiffed every single ball. It was I had to switch to the softball cage just just so I could get some of my self-respect back. So, Andrew, history of beer? (laughs) (laughs) All right. And the history of beer, I actually very much enjoy because beer first appeared in some form basically as soon as humans started to develop into an agrarian society because almost every cereal with certain sugars can experience spontaneous fermentation due to the wild yeast in the air. So it's likely the first beer wasn't deliberate. It also explains how it's quite possible that multiple societies developed it independently across the world. So beer is inevitable. Yes. (laughs) It it really was. Just as soon as we started developing grains, this was very soon afterwards because the, the earliest archaeological evidence of fermentation is from residue of a beer with the consistency of gruel uh, around 11,000 BCE, uh, used by the Natufians, which is a semi-nomadic society for ritual feasting near Haifa in Israel. So the Natufians were fairly unique because they started to settle into a partially sedentary culture even before developing agriculture, which was very unique. But with the significance beer would play, it not surprisingly also appears pretty much as soon as records do. A recipe, or at least ingredients for beer, is one of the oldest surviving recipes in the world. I was only able to find one older for nettle pudding in 6,000 BCE, which I red and sounds disgusting. But with the beer ingredient list being found in China from between uh, 3400 to 2900 BCE. I love the idea of guys, we've created language, write down this recipe. Uh, My kid is going to (laughs) get fucked up one day. And it was really interesting how how far back it does appear in writing and in different forms too, where suddenly it became significant. And as it often does in cultures, anything that is mind altering 
often takes on a religious significance as well, which means, you know, they're going to record it. And we'll get to that in just a second. But we do know it, it we, going back to 7,000 BCE, it was appeared in small scale by Chinese villagers and using a process that was similar to those later found belonging to ancient Egyptians and Mesopotamians. In Mesopotamia, the oldest evidence of beer is a 6,000-year-old Sumerian tablet showing people consuming a drink through reed straws from a communal bowl. Straws were used for beer due to the drink being consumed soon after the fermentation process, which left a lot of residue. So this was kind of like the only way you could drink it without it just being disgusting. I love the idea of like gruel consistency in beer because it just like brings to mind a current day, like middle-aged dad sneaking vodka in his oatmeal or something in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> Same idea, like I can eat this for breakfast and it gets me fucked up. There's some discussion as to, to how thick it actually was because we were saying that, look, if it was this thick, it would have been too strong. And recently, like in the past two years, they found yeast remnants from Egypt from 4,500 years ago and were able to revive it. Oh, there was there was like a beer brew, wasn't there? They used a, a beer not using the, the yeast, but using the grains from the time period. And it came out to a color more similar to wine. But yeah, they, they really tried to do this the traditional way, using the correct materials and ancient grains as well. Did we find a review? Yeah, from those that made it, they said it was pretty good. They said it, it again, was lighter. It was better than they expected it to be. There was also a guy who was able to take the yeast and using the grains actually from the time period and the process did actually bake bread and said it was far sweeter than any bread using modern yeast. He thinks it was probably somewhat contaminated with, with modern yeast, so not quite as pure, but this really meticulous process of reviving this yeast and then of course treating it to get it to grow enough to turn into bread. So yeah, they, they've been able to recreate a fair amount of this stuff, but the texture and how thick it was going to be was a bit hard to determine. And as they made it, they found that it, it was likely often made thinner by around 5,000 years ago. I love the idea of these archaeologists sitting around just being like, should we do this? Yeah. <laughs> should we not only make beer, but also a bread appetizer to go with yeah. it for the table? A charcuterie board with the, uh, <laughs> just using all these ingredients. But yeah, beer yeast is, is uh, more robust, I think, typically than bread yeast. So I'm not surprised it was a little sweeter. Uh, it had like probably more of a yeasty character to it. Sure. Well, and, and at the time, obviously, most of the yeast that's going to be infused is going to be whatever it happens to naturally pick up. So this this wasn't as much structured this far back as, as the understanding of the role yeast was playing and this wasn't even discovered until much later. But yeah, I actually did uh, go online and see if I could try and find... Uh, actually, it is possible. You can buy it? You can order it like online? It was more of a, th those that have made it are trying to grow it and make it available. Okay. So, uh, but this was about two years ago that it started. I'm not sure what the current process is, but guys, look, it's worth looking into if you're, if you're a heavy bread baker uh, and have access to some of the old grains as well. Because actually it was, it was one of the museums in London that did with the beer and they used the actual grains that they had on site, like for display <laughs> to make the beer, to get this like as, as pure to the original one as they could. This is like the Jurassic Park of beers. Just like yeah. <laughs> DNA Welcome to my brewery. Da, na, 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 na. Yeah, this is is very old. Uh, going back to uh, the Zagros Mountains of what is now Iran, are the earliest chemically confirmed use of barley in beer making, and these were re retrieved from fragments of a jug dated between fifty four hundred and five thousand years ago. But one that came into significant play was this 3,900-year-old Sumerian poem honoring Ninkasi, the patron goddess of brewing. As this hymn didn't just exist as a prayer in a time where very few could read, it laid out the steps of brewing as in a form saying Ninkasi was the one who did each of, of these steps. So it, so it was saying, um, it is you who handles the dough, mixing it with sweet aromatics, who bakes it in the oven, who waters the malt, soaks the malt, spreads the mash on reed mats. If you guys have the notes here, you can see the, the entire poem, which was fascinating. So that this was really a combination of, of 
spirituality uh, as well as, you know, it was a significant process for culture and it allowed the preservation of a recipe that was a gift from their gods. There is currently a beer called Ninkasi, right? There's a brewery in Oregon and I feel like that's a little egotistical of them to name themselves yeah. the goddess of brewing. <laughs> I mean, how could you not though? If no one else is using the name, you gotta hop on it. Oh, nice wordplay there. Hop on it. Ah, <laughs> that was actually their slogan. Uh, the name was available, so we hopped on it. Ninkasi. <laughs> a little long, but I think it works. Yeah. <laughs> not everything can be just do it, okay? <laughs> well, yeah, no, I mean, this makes sense. This has, again, a very cool history that did place it because it's one of those things that held on so long in its development because clay tablets from ancient Mesopotamia indicate the majority of brewers were most likely women and brewing was a fairly well-respected job as it was the only profession which had both social sanction and divine protection from female deities or goddesses. Because along with Ninkasi, you had her daughter, Cirrus, the patron demon of beer, uh, which I think is fantastic. They have a patron demon. Hell yeah. <laughs> and Siduri, a character in the Epic of Gilgamesh who's associated specifically with the enjoyment of beer, because if you remember the character, her role in the epic had been to dissuade Gilgamesh from his quest for immortality to instead be content with the simple pleasures of life. So the beer association was quite reasonable. Okay. Uh, is there a serious and Siduri brewery? Because that would also be an awesome, just like, hey, forget your troubles, sit down with a cold glass of Siduri. <laughs> It was Cheers. That was the original Cheers. Oh, yeah. That was actually the yeah. name. <laughs> and, you know, and then in the 80s, they're like, you know what? Audiences are stupid. We got to make this easy. Cheers. Sam Malone bought Cheers and renamed it to Cheers. <laughs> Ever a businessman, Sam, he had an idea that maybe people weren't going to be into the whole you know, ancient mythology. But before that, it was like half museum. It was fantastic. Absolutely destroyed for a sitcom. <laughs> Canonically, he was drunk when he bought it. So he probably was just like, I can't say that shit. Just call it Cheers. <laughs> I've been to the Cheers bar and it is not a throne room suited to a deity. It's like, you know, the shittiest little place you've ever been. Yeah. So it was doing a disservice. I still want to go. I still love Cheers so much. Yeah, it's worth going to. Sure. It's one of those things where I felt like, you know what, like if everyone's hanging out there, it would be fun. But like the point of Cheers was never like, oh, you know, what's great is this specific building. Right. No one in there knows your name. Fucking liars. Right. What if they did? What if you walked in there like John and you're like, <laughs> fuck, and you just leave? I, I would be like ghosts and I'd run away or something. <laughs> what is happening? It's, you know what? Take a shot. There are a lot of Johns out there. Like just every once in a while, the whole bar agrees. Just just yell a name. One of these days is going to work. Yeah, like a 30 percent chance. That'd be a great bit. If I did work at the Cheers bar, I'd be like whatever guy walks in here we're just going to yell mike and we're gonna freak one guy out today <laughs> all right guys that's it we're buying the cheers bar but that's <laughs> now we gotta do this cheers where they pour the worst beer you've ever seen it's like 50 percent head on that shit yeah like ted danson was the only one who took an actual bartending class so all of his pours are great all of Rhea Perlman's are fucking terrible. Wait, is this true? Is this real yes. research? Oh, wow, that's awesome. Now I have a whole other lens to watch Cheers through. Yeah, if you if you have ever taken a brewery class, if you've ever been a bartender, if you watch Ted Danson behind the bar, he is doing full-on, like, actual bartender work whenever he's not saying lines, and everyone else is just doing whatever an actor thinks somebody would be doing behind a bar. So they're pouring shit beer, they're, like, just, like, faking it, while, meanwhile, Ted Danson's over there, like, actually cleaning a glass, actually tilting the glass properly when pouring. So that's a that's a fun little Easter egg next time you're watching Cheers. No, Ted Danson commits hard. I heard like for the good place, he died. Yeah. Great show. <laughs> Sad story yeah. though. No, 
RIP. It was, you know what? He, he just, he's a method actor. He got to do what you got to do. He got the performance. <laughs> sorry, sorry. We'll stop sidetracking. What, what's, what's next? What's next? So even earlier. The sidetracks are good. It's, there are only so much. I mean, I can talk about yeast processes for ages, but I understand the audience is not here. It's why they tune in, actually. Yeah. I think it's the range. We, we, we cover enough here, so I don't want to dwell on this too much. But we do have to hit Egypt because it is where it very much developed. Again, going back 5,000 years, it was part of the daily diet of pharaohs. And that was then made from baked barley bread and was also used in religious practices. During the building of the pyramids of Giza, we know that each worker got a ration of four to five liters of beer a day. We know from the Ebla tablets, it was produced in Syria from 2,500 BCE. In India, the Vedas Ramayana uh, mentioned a drink similar to beer called Sura. In India, the Vedas Ramayana mentioned a drink similar to beer called Sura. It was even used as an anesthetic during the Vedic period, which is around, you know, 1500 to 500 BCE. The ancient Nubians did the same uh, in the area that is now in northern Sudan and southern Egypt. It was, again, considered a very magical product. Greek writer Sophocles discussed the concept of moderation regarding beer in Greek culture. The Romans had beer, but wine was generally more popular. Tacitus wrote disparagingly of beer brewed from the Germanic people. Thracians were known to drink beer made from rye, going back to 5th century BCE. And beer and bread are thought by some to be staples in the development of a society because it provided a consistent source of food and drink that allowed focus to be made on the growing of society as a whole. So the role it might have played here in allowing the focus of culture to develop, of growth of a society, is possibly very significant. Yeah, that, that's what I tell my wife, actually. I'm yeah. like, hey, I have to get drunk again because the culture and society needs it. Yeah. I love the idea of like, we were all nomads, but then they were like, guys, we have to stay in one place if you want me to brew that drink we all like. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Oxidation bad for beer. You don't want it like bopping around in the back of a cart or whatever. So you got to stay put while it's fermenting. Sure. Well, and, and I mean, that was it too. When we go back to early agrarian societies, uh, people kind of picture it as a nomadic hunter-gatherers. And then all of a sudden we have farms and there was a lot in between there where we're working with wheat grains and very little growth and kind of the stuff that's appearing on its own. And there's enough there that settlers are kind of trying to figure out if they can settle and stay there. So the idea that if you have enough, you can make something consistent and something strong and something pleasing. It's enough that you're willing to sit and build a culture. So it, it really did have a very important role. I love this. Yeah. This is so great. <laughs> so the, the next development, we're going to skip ahead a bit because it developed in the common era in a similar form, but with the rise of Christianity. Because brewers' guilds in the Middle Ages might even adopt a patron saint of brewing like Arnulf of Metz in the 7th century, Arnulf of, of Soissons in the, the 11th, Charlemagne, the Holy Roman Emperor, considered beer to be an important part of life and is often thought to have trained brewers himself. His beer was one of the most common drinks of the Middle Ages and was had daily by all social classes. There's the myth that it was consumed more than water, which isn't true. It doesn't really make sense because water was cheaper. And ultimately, if you lived in a town, it was going to be built by a water source because there, obviously there, there's the discussion of beer could last longer, uh, water would go stale quickly, but you know, beer at this time didn't last that long. This was before hops and you, you were going to be by a running water source, but it was still a very large part of life and all social classes and all ages would drink this. It's still like that in some parts of the South. It is. <laughs> And it, it developed because in the northern and eastern parts of Europe, grape cultivation was much more difficult. So this, again, gave an alternative to that. And obviously, we, we discussed back in, what was it, our rum episode about how they, again, tried this when we came to America. And that didn't quite work because grains were hard to grow, which is how we got over to rum as our base as we brought in the molasses import. So yeah, it's very much about what is accessible. So wine was the most common drink in the south of Europe, but beer was still popular among the lower classes. You know, the turnover time of beer was quicker. And the addition of hops was first documented in 822 CE by the Adelard of Corby. And though it took a while for it to be adopted as getting the proportions right was, was challenging. They couldn't quite figure out how to get this to taste and actually have the effect that you needed from hops. 
hops because it can be quite strong. Yeah, the funny thing is they finally got the proportions right, and then like IPA brewers in the eighties and nineties were like, "Fuck that! Yeah. We're going <laughs> to dump it all in there. Forget <laughs> all this all this work they did to figure out the right the right ratios. You know, we just want the enamel of your teeth to literally fall off when you take a sip." Yeah. <laughs> well, and as we'll get to in a bit, a lot of the value of hops was in the preservation value that this could be made to last longer. Before this, they still used flavoring, but it was gruit. It was a mix of herbs, and it, it didn't have those same preservation properties. So beer made with gruit spoiled soon enough after preparation that it couldn't even be exported. And if you were to increase the alcohol content to preserve it, that increased cost. So beer with hops wasn't perfected until Bohemia did it by the 13th century because they'd standardized barrel sizes that allowed for large-scale export. So beer had previously been brewed at home, but was now done in these medium-sized operations around eight to 10 people to actually be exported. And because of this, the techniques were noticed all over and developed. So it spread to Holland in the 14th and Flanders and Brabant, and finally England by the late 15th century. This was such a development that England had laws separating beer from ale with no brewer being allowed to produce both. So the first beer snob yeah. arose around this time immediately yeah because <laughs> the brewers company of london actually stated no hops herbs or other like things shall be put into any ale or liquor whereof ale shall be made but only liquor in this case meaning water and it's spelled without an e at the end malt and yeast so that was it if it was going to be ale it only could have water malt and yeast and uh, if you were adding any flavorings it would then be beer yeah that sounds really annoying i mean but that, yeah. that still continues <laughs> Uh, to this day, there's still people who'd be like, oh, this is a good beer. Like, actually, it's a lager. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shut up. <laughs> yeah, it's me. I'm that guy. Oh, you're that guy? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm, you know, like, if somebody asked, I would say it. But I don't offer it up unprompted. Yeah. <laughs> if it came up in conversation, you would just be like, well, actually, a little fun fact about this is, but you wouldn't just be like, you're not drinking beer. You're drinking a <laughs> lager. <laughs> I have a buddy who, uh, who brews beer, uh, in his free time. He has like a, a keg refrigerator with like three different taps that he has in his living room. And he'll make like special occasion beer for like certain things. Like if we go on a trip, he'll bring like a pony keg of like a brew made just for that trip. And like sometimes in the summer, like it does have have those fruity things, those fruity notes to it. And I like that. <laughs> Fuck you, England. See? Here's the thing, like, I love cooking. I love science. Con conceptually, the, the process of making beer sounds amazing to me. I think I would love doing that. The problem is at the end, I'm going to have a product that I do not want. Andrew just offering up bottles of beer to anyone he sees. Like. Yeah, it's like, cool, I, I enjoyed the science part and I'm, I'm done now. <laughs> And, but that makes you such a dick that there's no way you could be that person that like, no, I brew the beer for the science. When I, when I brew beer, the problem is like I, I make the beer and it comes out really good, but then I have to put it in bottles, which is the um, most tedious and messy process in the world. So I just like leave it in the corner, like in a closet somewhere. Like, I really got to bottle that beer. Like it's been, you know, three months. So I end up with these science experiments that just like, keep fermenting way past their date. There's new yeast being introduced now. Like, you keep misusing the funnel. You're like, well, I have to use this beer and I got this funnel. So here we go. Pro teams have millions to spend and they don't always spend them wisely. But when it comes to a great shave, you don't have to shell out tons of cash. Harry's saw customers getting ripped off by the shaving industry with overpriced, underperforming products and decided to do something better. They found their own way to make beautifully designed razors for a fraction of the price of the other big brands. So you never wonder if you overpaid. Harry's shaving products look great and the weighted handle makes shaving feel great too. I like to keep my beard neat and Harry's always leaves me with a smooth yet crisp shave. Harry's quality is top notch. 
thanks to German-engineered blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer. You can get a five-blade razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and a travel cover for just three bucks at harrys.com slash bluewire. And Harry's has the highest customer satisfaction in the shaving industry, plus a convenient subscription option that you can cancel at any time. Getting the best doesn't mean spending the most when you shave with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash bluewire. That's harrys.com slash bluewire for a $3 trial set. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I mean, the, the, the process, as you know, Jeff, for, for making this is specific. This is, there's time that really has to be paid attention to, to get the product that you're looking to create. And obviously there needed to be a development in science before people could really figure out why this was happening, but there was still an understanding of what needed to be done. Even if they didn't understand why it was working. Like there was that, that story from ancient Rome where quench a sword, it was urinated on by a, a redheaded child and it became a fantastic steal. And after that, they had swords peed on by redheaded kids to quench it. <laughs> Because there was no consideration of like, oh, the, the ammonia might have had an effect in this. It was, nope, redheaded kid, do it. Just keep doing that. <laughs> we just need some of that sweet, sweet redhead urine. <laughs> yeah. When you missed out on a career opportunity there. Yeah. Ah, uh, it's just the beard. Yeah. It's just the beard. I, I can most, I can only piss on small daggers. It's <laughs> Right. Maybe like a sigh, like Raphael. Yeah. <laughs> Small swords, like a, like a fencing sword, I got you covered. But I couldn't do like a medieval broadsword by any means. Right. Like, all right, I got like a third of this sword good and peed on, but the rest of it's <laughs> You're going to have to bring in a better redhead for the rest of this. If Brendan Gleeson here to pee on the rest of the sword, we need somebody to be a big redhead. Andrew, I love the idea of you brewing beer and hating it the entire time. Like, you just being like, this is so much fun, but I don't want it one bit. I assume it would be like working in the two and a half men's writer's room. Like, it's just like, this is my dream. This is everything I love. But the product is fucking awful, isn't it? That is a perfect metaphor. Andrew would make the best beer ever and just become like one of those tortured artists that hates his own art. Yeah. What a curse. What a what a what a witch's curse to be gifted with the best brewing abilities for a beverage you just despise. <laughs> Not measuring anything, just throwing everything in the pot. Like it comes out perfect. I don't know why. <laughs> what a fun Twilight Zone episode featuring just Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> this is an episode for like maybe four people. <laughs> They're like, oh yeah, I get that. <laughs> All right, where were we on this? Beer snobs. Uh, pee, peeing, peeing on swords. Peeing, uh, God, yeah, we got a lot of sidetracks, so this is going to be a good one. Uh, <laughs> so, all right, so the, yeah, the, the Brewers Company and, and the uh, the rules on ale from beer, because this is sometimes misconstrued as a prohibition of hopped alcohol, which was not all the case. There were those that, that frowned on it. I found this quote uh, from those that opposed it, and it's challenging to read because there's just extra E's and T's everywhere. I'm going to give this my best shot. Please, I'm going to give right. it my best shot, and it's probably going, I'm probably going to fuck this up. Go for it. Ale is made of malt and water. <laughs> and they, the witch, do put any other thing to ale than is rehearsed, except yeast, balm, or goddess good. Three words for yeast is in parentheses. Doth sophisticate their ale. Ale for an Englishman is a natural drink. Drink must hew these properties. It must be fresh and clear. It must not be ropey, nor smoky, nor must hew, nor weft, nor tail. Ale should not be drunk under the dales old. Barley malt maketh better ale than oaten malt or any other corn doth. Beer is made of malt of hops and water. It is a natural drink 
for a Dutchman, and know of late days it is most versed in England to the detriment of many Englishmen, for the drink is a cold drink. <laughs> Yet it doth make a man fat, and doth inflate the belly, as it doth appear by the Dutchmen's faces and bellies. Wow. Fantastic. Perfect. When I was in Brooklyn last weekend, and I think like a hipster named Bryce gave me that exact same speech. <laughs> <laughs> That was uncanny. <laughs> that just seems like something Conan O'Brien would say as a bit. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but you're right. Just the level of beer snobs hit immediately as soon as, as this was developed. And of course, you also had these a lot of people working as this was developed, uh, often by monks. You had this cloistered process. And hops played a really significant development in beer, moving from small-scale home brewing to a large-scale export operation in the late Middle Ages, moving on to the modern era. Because along with larger kettle sizes and more frequent brewing, they just understood the process at this point, which needed to be done. So from the 15th to 17th century, the per capita consumption in Hamburg increased from about 300 liters per year to 700 liters per year. And it became regulated with William IV, Duke of Bavaria, even adopting the uh, Reinhetzkabat, the, the purity law in 1516, which allowed only water, barley, and hops to be used and yeast only after Louis Pasteur's discovery of its role in fermentation in 1857. And it remained on the books until 1987. This is possibly one of the longest lasting food laws to preserve uh, into the, the 20th century. Further advancement didn't really come until the Industrial Revolution with the invention of the thermometer in 1760 and hydrometer in 1770, which measures relative density of liquids, this, which allowed an estimation of alcohol content. What you were saying, that what ABV, right? Yeah. ABV, that's right. Aha! Yeah. When, as you'd mentioned here in your uh, old English reading, where it, it specifically mentions beer shouldn't be smoky, one of the biggest challenges in brewing had been the process of drying malt. It was dried over fires without a good method of shielding, so it would pick up high smoky flavors and brewers worked incredibly hard to find ways just to make their beers less smoky. That was one of the big challenges. If you had a less smoky beer, you had a good beer. Certain wood smoked malts like those in the West Country were famous for being absolutely undrinkable, except to like the small pocket of locals and to the absolutely desperate. <laughs> yeah, smoked smoked beer is still a thing today and it's like drinking a fucking campfire. It is brutal. <laughs> like, I mean, I would think. Uh, Rauk beer is, is the most popular one you see in the States ever. And no shade at anyone who enjoys it, but I can't imagine why you would drink it. But drinking a beer by a campfire, yeah. one of the best things you can do. Perfect. They just took it a step too far. Yeah, they shouldn't combine the two. Like, they should not, like, this is not a, your peanut butter is in my chocolate, your chocolate is in my peanut right. butter situation. <laughs> Well, no, this was a, a big shift. Obviously, it might even had, you know, a scotch that's too smoky, one that really benefits from the smoky flavor, but it can be really overwhelming, especially combined with alcohol. <laughs> so this was a, a real challenge. But with the hydrometer, they were able to determine the yield from different malts and found the more expensive pale malt resulted in more fermentable material, making the price worthwhile. So it became standard in most all beers with darker malts just being added essentially for color. As part of this, amber beers came from an all amber malt mix, brown from brown malt mix, and it was exclusively that. Then once they realized they didn't have to darken this as much, they could get more out of it. It was worth the money they were able to control it quite a bit more. So uh, then after that, you got drum roasters in about 1817, which allowed her very dark roasted malts. In 1816, the British adopted a law forbidding ingredients other than malt and, and hops. So porter brewers needed to find a legal way to color their beer since they were using a pale malt grist. And the drum roaster allowed for a dark malt enough to actually achieve the color and still meet the law of only allowing these three ingredients. Yeah, the purity laws, I, there's 
some debate because a lot of German brewers still adhere to them uh, to this day. And it may have kind of set them back in like the world brewing sphere because beer's gotten a lot more experimental lately and they're still kind of tied to this this very old school type of thought. Yeah, like we now have PBR coffee beer. Yeah, <laughs> real? yeah PBR has a coffee beer now. Fuck me. <laughs> I actually just saw that the other day. <laughs> I mean, I might have to like try it just to see. Everyone else is trying to get into seltzers and PBR is just like, no, we're going coffee on this one. We want to be your morning beer. Yeah. <laughs> the beer you drink so your hand doesn't shake. Look, <laughs> I will say, okay, so the movie The Way Back starring Ben Affleck. Good movie. Good film, great performance by Ben Affleck. The thing I don't like about it is that they portray drinking a beer in the shower as a bad thing. <laughs> when I say that's probably the most refreshing beer you're ever going to drink. Yeah, especially if it's still cold, like the, the shower hasn't heated it up yet. Cold beer in the warm shower is, is magic. Oh, if you're like outside all day and you like come in and you bring a cold beer into a hot shower, it's probably the most relaxing thing you can possibly do, especially bring in a speaker, play some music, just make a day of it. Oh, now we're just hanging out in the shower. Did we cover this on an episode? What, do I feel like we talked about this? I probably do. Oh, we know what it was. It was, guys, you have to go subscribe to our Patreon to hear this. This was the episode we had, the, the here's where we went wrong with Paula Skaggs. <laughs> and Maggie Smith, yes. I tried to get everyone in on the shower beer train and everyone looked at me like I was a horrible alcoholic. Oh no. I pushed shower oranges, but yeah, guys, go subscribe to our Patreon if you want to hear that story because it was one of our favorite episodes. <laughs> yes. So shower beer, when, if I liked beer, I would give it a shot. Fair enough. Like a shower rum and coke's a little more unwieldy. I know. Like in a big open glass, you can't really do that. <laughs> Honestly, I'm most drink water and I'm like, well, a shower water, that's not anything. That's that's, <laughs> that's a shower. Just, you're just back to shower. That's yeah. more shower. <laughs> <laughs> just doubling down on shower. <laughs> you're just double downing on what works. Yeah. That's an inside shower. It's a shower for your tummy. <laughs> All right, let me wrap up the 19th century here so we can move on. The side drops are more fun than this, but I do want to hit the next big shift because it was Louis Pasteur and his discovery of yeast role in alcoholic fermentation in 1857. Others had proposed decomposition led to fermentation. Pasteur, disproving this, was uh, able to show that different microorganisms contaminated the wine. He uses wine as a test for this, producing lactic acid, making the wine sour. And this led to his research showing microorganisms were responsible for other beverages, including meat, milk, and beer, result of pasteurization process to solve it. So this was really significant. It was also instrumental in the development of germ theory and microorganisms making humans sick. And Joseph Lister, of course, developing the antiseptic methods and surgery to combat it after that. So this was a, a huge thing. I mean, it, it led to revolutionizing medicine, uh, to, to being able to obtain milk further, and of course, now understanding what was changing the flavor of beer and what to do to preserve it so it could be spread farther and last longer. Of course, it took our alcohol getting fucked up for people to make like real medical advancements. Like this can't, this can't happen. I mean, yeah, that's, that's that's typically how it works. We need our we need our booze. So scientists do your thing and figure this out. If we can invent a better Coors Light, we can get everyone to take the vaccine. I think is what we're figuring out. <laughs> I'll try anything at this point. If we just get like a label on the vaccine that changes color to let you know how cold it is, right? I feel like people would be all over that. <laughs> I do love the mountains. I don't drink Coors Light, but I love the mountains as a marketing gimmick. I think that's genius. If you hold the mountains for too long, the blue will come off onto your skin. <laughs> oh, I did not know that. A cold can of Coors Light in your hand or like your hand is sweaty and you just hold it like the mountain blue will start to like come off onto your skin, which is unpleasant. It was, I mean, it obviously was a very successful campaign, but there was just so much based on cold. And I understand it was partially about the cold brewing process, but also like, I know when I put it in the fridge, I don't feel, feel like I need this. Also, I can touch it and that will tell me how cold it is. That was a David Cross bit he did. He was like, of all the senses you can use to tell if beer is cold, sight should not be the, the 
top one. Yeah. So. <laughs> Good. All right. Of course, David Cross hit it first. That's a great bit. <laughs> okay. So everything about beer sounds fantastic. So, John, I got to ask, where did it go wrong? Well, it went wrong uh, specifically in the U.S. with mostly with prohibition. Breweries were a thriving business in America. Up until that point, the Volstead Act was passed, and most of them had to close their doors because, you know, can't sell beer and you're a brewery, what are you supposed to do? Right. I looked it up. There were upwards of 2,000 breweries across the United States before Prohibition. Yeah. And then by 1940, which is after the Volstead Act was repealed, there was only 684. So think of that drop off. And a lot of the, the big brewers were able to survive Prohibition by either shifting their business, making something called near beer, which is just very low alcohol beer. This act was saying that they weren't allowed to brew it and sell it, right? Right. You can own beer and consume alcohol, but you couldn't sell it or man- manufacture it. I think you couldn't manufacture it either. But a lot, what a lot of them did is they made malt syrup, which is just taking their grains and boiling them down into like a really thick maple syrup consistency, which is still used by home brewers to get like a beer base without having to, you know, extract sugars from grain themselves. And they would sell it as like, you know, for baking cookies. But everyone knew it was for making your own beer. It's like when you see those uh, like neck massagers advertised. We all know what's going on here, but we'll let it slide. Or like in high school, I went to a private school where everyone got drug tested. And so like there is like this incense stuff called spice that was just like, this doesn't get you high, wink. And like, so everyone smoked this incense and we're getting really chemically fucked up. on. They should not have been doing this. I did not partake, but they're like, it gets you high and doesn't show up on a drug test. And I was like, I will wait till I'm not in a private Catholic school anymore to figure this out like an adult. <laughs> Just do regular drugs. Again. When I went to high school in Arrakis, uh, from Dune. No, it was the town from Footloose uh, was where I mostly... <laughs> oh, okay. But uh, other breweries also got into sodas and ice cream shops. And I thought that that was whimsical. A lot of ice cream was made during this. A lot of ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> I guess because they all had big coolers or whatever, it was easy to kind of pivot to that business model. But yeah, like Yingling became one of the biggest ice cream companies in the country during Prohibition. We should also discuss the level of... This prohibition obviously was built out of, out of a lot of dumb reasons, but the religious fervor around this because the ice cream sundae came to be invented because the religious side believed that it was a sin to drink carbonated water on Sunday. So prior to this, ice cream floats were the big thing. So the Sunday was it was actually invented to give kids something to eat at the soda shops on the weekend when they couldn't have carbonated water or risk going to hell. The options to pivot here were limited. <laughs> That's fucking incredible. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. I'm a huge fan of whatever the fuck that is. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't even like that long ago. It seems like such a silly distinction to make. It's kind of like, it's not present day, but it's not, you know, ancient times. No, it was, it was about a hundred years ago when the Sunday was developed. Yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, during the, the soda shop era before this, it was mostly drinks that, that kids would, would go and, and have. So options to pivot here when you had a beer company were looking to make something else. Any Anything good was going to be a sin. Right. So you had to kind of figure out a way to make something going here. But in the wake of the Volstead Act being repealed, we got something which still endures to this day called the three-tier distribution model for beer, which stated that breweries can't sell beer directly to consumers. They need a middleman. Beer Breweries can sell beer to a distributor who then sells it to retailers and customers. And as we know, in America, not, like there's no corruption or anything in the business world. So there's no way this is ever going to be abused by larger companies, right? Right. Sure. Yeah, it was definitely going to be above board the entire time. Now, of course, the big brewery started, you know, some real shady tactics to pay off distributors to get better shelf space, more taps and bars. And it's 
you know, continues to this day. The beer industry has spends on lobbying more than the gun and cigarette industry combined. That's incredible. That's absolutely nuts to think about, especially because when you come out of prohibition, the only places that can really go, you know, full throated, like you were beer again, are places that could afford to change back. Right. The ones that operated throughout. And most of them just seeing this new business environment, they were just like, well, I'll do something else. You know, I'm not going to reopen my brewery. And it really dissuaded people from trying to get into the business, which is how we ended up with, you know, something like 95% by the 80s of America's beer being brewed by Anheuser-Busch, Coors, Miller, and, you know, those companies. Right. I actually have some notes here that currently independent breweries make up 25% of the market share of beer consumed in the United States. The other 75% are Anheuser-Busch, Saab Miller, Heineken, and Carlsberg. Those four companies make up 75% of beer distribution, and I believe also 74% of the profits. Yeah, they, they do 74% of the uh, market in dollar sales and something like 88% in the consumption by volume. Because, you know, craft beer is more expensive, so it has more of a share in the in the dollars, but not as much in the volume. Right. But there's very little regulation on, like, craft beer is, is not a, like a regulated term, right? It kind of is. Is it now at this point? Yeah, like there's a, an association that dictates what a craft beer brewery is and how much beer you can produce and how much outside investment you can have in order to qualify. Okay. So, because what I had read, and this was a couple of years ago, was part of the issue was that these beers that were owned by these conglomerates were still presenting themselves as if these were these independent or craft beers. And of course, selling at the, at the markup. And maybe this was what they were able to control from technicalities, from being uh, <laughs> this percentage owned or this level of production. But ultimately still, it's, it's funded by one of these four conglomerates. Yeah. Well, the term craft beer is, you know, it's not, trademarked as far as I know, but there is like a little stamp you'll see on some beers that's like a little bottle and that's for the craft beer alliance, which means you're like a true craft brewery, but yeah. Oh, got it. So they can technically use the word craft, but if so anyone knows what to look for, they'll be able to tell the difference, but I could put out something and just call it craft beer. (laughs) Exactly. And the way AB InBev specifically, which is the Anheuser-Busch like mega company, they just buy breweries now instead of like trying to make their own beer that looks like craft beer. People caught on to that really quick. So now they just buy up small breweries that, you know, have a market share and a, and a foothold in a certain region, as opposed to, you know, it's like, if you can't beat them, join them. They're just like, okay. But then these companies sell to them and I don't begrudge anybody trying to make some money. You know, you build a company up, somebody wants to buy it for you for millions of dollars, but then they they take their the money that they make from these profits, these crap breweries are giving them and pay lobbyists to go make it laws harder for small breweries to function and distribute their beer. They pay for commercials that shit on small breweries. And they had that one commercial that aired during the Super Bowl where everyone was like, oh, this is my like double orange peel wheat beer. And I was like, yeah, but you fucking bought a bunch of breweries that make that beer. Like, what do they think when they see these commercials on TV? Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, people have their beers that they like. Like Lagunitas is a beer that I associate with Chicago. But in 2015, they sold 50% of their stake to Heineken, but they still had their autonomy and a lot of people were upset about it. And then in 2017, Heineken went in and bought the whole thing. They bought the rest of it. And the reason it makes sense for Heineken is that a large part of this is that brewers have a high operating cost and operate on a gross margin of just 20%, which is very low. Not only that, but you also have to pay for distributors. The startup fee costs 
for a brewery can range between $250,000 and $2.5 million. A lot of people don't have the money to be able to sustain a business like that on top of having to distribute it, uh, get it in, in places, get it prominently placed on shelves in breweries. So they go to these people and say, hey, yeah, we'll take a buyout of a certain percentage so that we can use your infrastructure. But that's how it works. That's how all these great beer labels, they take your brand loyalty and they say, well, that's ours now. Uh, you'd use our trucks, you can use our facilities, but we own you. And it's how you end up getting these four companies producing half of the world's beer and making 74% of the world's profits on beer. That's incredible. The average beer drinker doesn't know or care about all these behind the scenes machinations and buyouts and who's lobbying for who. They just want to drink good beer. So I don't begrudge people for drinking them, but it's like the, the companies that sell out and then offer these answers like, well, you know, the beer's still going to be the same. Don't worry. It's like, no, that's not what we're fucking worried about. Like, right. These companies <laughs> actively harm the industry. Like, don't talk about Chicago beer. I mean, Goose Island got completely bought out by Anheuser-Busch a few years ago. Yep. That was a huge thing. There's a whole book written about it. Well, and I think you've, you've got it right that it's it's not the immediacy. It's not like, oh, this beer is something going to suck. It's the long-term effect of the, what always happens when a monopoly forms, <laughs> that it shuts down possibility for any competition to build up and for any creativity. Well, there's four though. So it's not technically a monopoly, Andrew. <laughs> it's enough that they're able to keep going. <laughs> Quadopoly, is that what we're, we are? Anheuser-Busch has got like, if, if, if they control 75%, I've got to think Anheuser-Busch is like up by 50 or AB InBev is their uh, they got bought out by like a Dutch company named InBev a while ago. But yeah, they've got to be like 50%. They're massive. I used to work in breweries uh, before I started doing comedy on the internet. And one of them got bought by AB InBev and I used to uh, can their beer for them. And it was like night and day from the minute those guys showed up. They were, you know, stopping the line every 20 minutes to test all the beer. They made me wear a little beard net, like a hair net for my beard. Right. Like, what the fuck is this doing? I mean, I feel like conceptually that's probably a good idea. Yeah, right? I, don't think that's, I don't think that's the <laughs> no. worst thing they could have said. No. <laughs> don't understand. Like, what the fuck, guys? There's no hair in the beer anymore? <laughs> you sold out. You used to get beard hair in this beer. There was a brewer who made a beer uh, with yeast found on his beard. And oh, that, that was a big news story like seven or eight years ago, maybe. Oh, yeah. Super Gross Brewing Company. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Super Gross Brewing Company. And, uh, never go there, Tennessee. But Okay, so that's where it went wrong. However, we do have another segment in this show called In Their Defense where we have to defend the thing that we've been shitting on for the past hour. Guests get first crack at it. So, John, defend the quadrinopoly of the brewing companies. Oh, yay. <laughs> All right. This took me a little while to <laughs> come up with a potential positive for this situation. But I think I have a good one. And craft brewing is not a perfect industry by any means. You know, as much as I, I defend it and I love it, it's got a lot of problems with gender and race. and pay. Brewers are paid very little. Brewery staff is paid, paid almost nothing. So these big companies do have the infrastructure to fix some of those problems and have like an HR department and health insurance and more like diversity programs to try to make the brewing industry a little better. So I'm hoping these breweries getting bought out by these people means craft beer will come to grips with its own problems in the industry and then fix them and then destroy this monopoly. But only after they learn from them, you know, take what's good about them and then they can destroy them. That's what I hope for the future. Fair. Okay. Okay. 
Andrew, do you have a defense? The main defense here is access. Are they evil corporations that are ultimately going to destroy the industry for everyone? Of course, that's what always happens. But until that happens, you get to taste some weird shit. Some shit that might not end up on your grocery stores because it was just some dude making this backyard before this. And now you've got the entire infrastructure of a massive evil organization to get this shipped out to you overnight. You can have a beer that you've never heard of before in like seven hours. Thanks these evil companies in Amazon. And you know what? As long as the world is being destroyed by these companies, enjoy it a little bit. Have some really good beer and go down with it. I, I feel like conceptually, <laughs> I understand the game here. Is this good in any way for beer as a whole, for those working hard, for those creating their own unique recipes? No, it's horrible for them. But a couple guys got a lot of money and you got to taste a beer with, you know, some orange and anise seed in it that was shipped over from Malaysia for absolutely no reason. So, uh, you know what? Enjoy it, guys. That's that's the big plus. Okay, I can, I can see that. I'm going to hit you on a few fronts here. Oh boy. First off, like I said, I enjoy garbage beer. <laughs> and the way that this is all set up is I can buy that beer for nothing. It costs me almost zero dollars to buy a 24 rack of Bud Light. It, it costs like 10 bucks. They are just giving you that shit away, okay? <laughs> it does not cost me any money to get very drunk and to provide alcohol for an entire party, okay? That is how cheap that they have been able to get their product. But not only that, they are so consuming that you can see a Clydesdale and you're like, Budweiser. And like, that's just seared into your brain now. Like we have whole cultural footstones that wouldn't exist if Budweiser didn't exist. If I answered a phone in the nineties and I said, what's up? <laughs> Everyone else would join the fuck in. And do you know why? Because Budweiser has permeated our culture to the point that they have taken over a horse breed. They've taken over catchphrases and twins. We have that. That's a thing. That's a thing that I now know to say because of a mega beer company. So all of these things exist. All of them are probably bad as a whole, but I had fun in the 90s with my WhatsApp joke. <laughs> and so did the movie Scary Movie, which I enjoyed when I was 12 and I'm afraid to rewatch. And so did the movie That's My Boy, which came out in 2012 and featured that joke heavily. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Timely. Good job, Adam Sandler. <laughs> but, all right. Fine, when. You were like, you're giving like the everyman point of view on this. And I respect that. Oh, I mean, look at me. I'm so interchangeable with so many other white guys you've ever seen. Like, <laughs> of course, I'm giving the everyman perspective. I am like literally the character that pops up in a build your own character screen. I'm like the blank slate that they're like, add personality to this. I'm 5'10". Like, that's the most basic height you can be. Come on. <laughs> All right. I think, though... We've covered it all. I mean, that sounds like it. We got the history. We got what you guys loved and what I have tried sometimes to fit in, where it ultimately went wrong with, with conglomerates destroying everything good about it. And in their defense, where we all kind of justified evil because it's temporarily convenient. I think that's a, a good wrap. Yeah. Andrew, I'm going to come to Chicago and I'm not going to try to find a beer you like because that's a really annoying thing beer drinkers do. I'm just going to drink a beer in your vicinity. That's, I'm absolutely fine with that. And Andrew's going to look at you just like, it's just like freshly mowed grass. <laughs> a nice spring day. I don't see the appeal. It's like a basket of puppies. How do you even enjoy that? All right, we got a call back, so that's a wrap for us, guys. <laughs>
John Drake, thank you so much for coming on today. It was a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for having me, guys. This was a blast. Absolutely. And guys, please go check out John's podcast, Blast Zone, which you know can find when my episodes on, as well as many others. They're a lot of fun. Guys, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe. Give us five stars. It helps out so much. We've got a Patreon down in the show notes where you can hear that bonus episode we have that we discussed earlier today. And you should absolutely go uh, do that because it helps us keep the show going and it's a lot of fun. We'll be back next week. We hope you'll join us then. When? I'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.